So welcome to the Everything Marketplaces podcast, which is the audio version for our group chats that we have with marketplace founders and leaders for the Everything Marketplaces community every week. So I'm your host, Mike Williams, or some of you might know me as you or me from social. And in today's episode, we have a chat with James Courier, who's a founding partner at NFX. So James is, of course, someone that we all know in the world of marketplaces since he's one off, if not the leading minds when it comes to both network effects and marketplaces. He's also an investor at NFX, which is a leading venture fund that's backed over 80 marketplaces like DoorDash, Lyft, Poshmark, Outdoorsy, Incredible Health, and more. So this is a really great chat with James where we got to learn more about his previous operator experience and learnings that he's taken with him to now investing, did a deep dive into network effects and why they make marketplaces great and defensible businesses, got to learn more about NFX as a leading venture fund, how they evaluate marketplaces, discuss the differences between good and great marketplaces, some of the biggest mistakes that marketplace founders often make, and also had a great group Q&A. So I really enjoyed this chat and know you're going to find a great listen to the end. Now let's get into it. So James, welcome to the group chat. And as I mentioned to you right before we hit record, you know, you've been one of the uh, most requested group chat guests since we first started the uh, community. So this is a real treat to have you uh, join us here today. And wanted to start off by saying, you know, huge thanks for uh, taking the time to do so in advance. You know, so I'm looking forward to diving into more on the network effects and all your incredible experience investing in marketplaces and NFX. But I thought it might be great if you can uh, briefly, you know, share a little bit more on your background for those that uh, might not know you. And then uh, what led you to our network effects and marketplaces? Sure. Well, great to meet you all. Thanks. Uh, thanks for coming today. So look, I grew up in uh, the Boston area. I did the whole Exeter, Princeton, Harvard Business School thing. And before HBS, I worked at a venture firm called Battery Ventures. I was smiling and dialing. I was an associate helping to sell money to, to founders, basically, when there was only 40 active venture firms in the whole world. So uh, it was very early on. And um, I, started some, I started businesses. Instead of going back into venture after business school, I decided to start a company. We didn't have network effects. And when we got acquired by a marketplace called Monster.com, a marketplace between employers and employees, I realized that I had really missed the boat in building a company that had no network effects. This was about 2004. And so I became obsessed with network effects. I became a student of them. And it turns out that marketplaces, a marketplace network effects only one type of network effect. And of course, we started seeing you know, uh, direct network effects with social networking and, and email and other things. So I started to tease out the differences between them, and by the late 2000s and zeros, um, I really was really focused on marketplaces. So I made investments in Poshmark and in Lyft and in um, DoorDash and, and these, you know, Goodreads and these sorts of things. So um, uh, that's how I got into it, and that's 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 why I became obsessed. No, that's a, that's a really great uh, background. And, uh, you know, thanks for sharing with us on that. So definitely a lot we can uh, get into and, uh, you know, even reference like uh, your post as far as what we had the uh, 16, 16 types of uh, network effects. I think so. I think there might be 17 now, but yeah. So I guess kind of going back though, you know, to, to your founder and kind of operator experience, you know, were, were there any other kind of like specific kind of learnings or maybe like key insights that you've taken with you to maybe, uh, you know, thinking about how you invest in marketplaces today? Yeah. I mean, there's a ton, right? I mean, each marketplace is so unique. And the, the big thing I think that uh, I came to realize is how difficult they are to fly. So often like you'll create a, a, a SaaS business and then you'll evolve the product every now and again, but really you're just innovating on sales once you've figured out what you want to go to market and your product is. With marketplaces, you literally have seasons or you have innings of a baseball game. There's literally like nine or more. And, and you have to keep changing what you're doing and what you're emphasizing at different phases of growth as you get more demand or more supply or more this or more competition. And 
And so they're, they're difficult to fly. Uh, it takes a really skilled pilot looking at a lot, a lot of metrics to understand how to make these things work um, and certainly how to make them bigger. And so you'll have companies like Fiverr, which will start small and very compact, and everyone will say, oh, that'll never be big. And then it gets to be worth six, eight, seven, eight billion, and they really can't grow from there. They just sort of asymptote out because they can't figure out what the next inning is. Um, so even the successful ones have a tough time. I mean, you've seen what happened with Lyft right now, where it's, you know, that network effect is collapsing. So uh, that that's sort of the, the the overall picture about marketplaces that they're all unique and it's a very difficult plane to fly. Yeah, that's a really, really great point as far as them uh, being unique, right? Like a lot of times you try to, uh, you know, point and kind of compare what we're building to, to others. So A lot of firms have said, look, I'm building a platform for people to build marketplaces. I'm going to build the infrastructure, the software, and that never works because each each marketplace is so different based on, on the vertical or the angle they're coming in or the or, or even the channel that they're acquiring customers from. And then the phase of when that marketplace is happening, is it 2019, is it 2023, is it 2020? It's all different. So the software has to be so unique to service each of these things that the, those platforms never work. Yeah, certainly. We'll, we'll probably uh, jump into some of the topics as far as, you know, like uh, what we're seeing with some of those kind of go-to-market go strategies here, uh, you know, today uh, in a little bit. But I guess, you know, uh, most of us here, of course, know NFX, um, but could you give us like a, a brief overview of, of it as a venture fund today? Sure. So NFX is, if not the largest, one of the largest seed funds in the world. Um, we've got a $450 million fund. We just do seed investments. Our average check size, $3 million. Average ownership is about 16.5%. We've got about 165 investments now. Uh, we've been around since 2017. We have uh, five partners that are all equal. Uh, and, um, you know, four of us invest in marketplaces. And um, and so, you know, probably 56% of the companies we invest in have some sort of marketplace element to them. I mean, it's, it's more than half of the, the, all the companies we invest in. Uh, we've got offices in San Francisco. We've got offices in Tel Aviv. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, so, so that's about all of our, all of our investors are you know, institutions like, you know, colleges and endowments and, and um, you know, those foundations and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, we don't take a salary. We're doing this for sport. Uh, we're doing this to have an impact and and really help founders. Is what we love doing. We love whiteboarding. We like working with you. So after we invest, we'll meet with you every week until you're sick of us because we like the building process with you. Uh, we could make a lot more money investing later stage, but that's not who we are. We're builders, and you know I think that among us, we've built and sold over ten billion dollars worth of companies ourselves, which is twice as much as Horowitz and Andreessen when they started that firm. Yeah, you definitely uh, ha have an awesome uh, platform and, uh, you know, products and kind of resources that you've created. So Yeah. Yeah. We're the second most traffic VC website in the world after Andreessen. So it's Andreessen, us, Sequoia, and first round. Uh, and then it drops off pretty substantially after that, just of all the content we build. And so obviously if you, if you go to, um, if you just go to Google type in NFX library marketplaces, you'll get um, uh, a good page. Or if you just go into the content area and you scroll down, you'll get to a marketplaces area down there. Um, we actually put the marketplaces area down lower because it makes people, it's like putting the milk in the back of the, the, uh, the supermarket. Everyone wants the milk. So they will scroll through the other stuff first so you can find it. There's a ton of, ton of stuff we've written about marketplace. Yeah, no, it's a, it's all, it's always being a reference in the community. So it's a, it's great. Um, so, so you mentioned as far as, you know, really, uh, kind of rolling up your sleeves and working with founders. Um, so could you, uh, maybe share an example of like a recent, uh, marketplace that you've invested in and, you know, kind of how you've, uh, worked, worked with the founder and the team? 
There's a company called Octo, A-U-C-T-O, and they are doing a B2B marketplace for used assets in the automotive and energy sectors. And we like these B2B marketplaces, um, particularly used equipment, because they have individual SKUs. It's, if, if, if you don't have an individual SKU, then it's just an e-commerce site. It's harder, I think, uh, in many cases to, to build a marketplace. So we actually favor used equipment. And these guys, um, you know, cold emailed me out of Toronto and I've been working with them now for two years. And um, once, once you know, I got involved, we decided that the main thing to do is to build a sort of inventory management system for SaaS embedding for the supply side because it's a supply side marketplace. Um, you know, we had worked with Incredible Health in the past and, you know, they had been doing a different business when they came to us. And we actually suggested this business to them, which was, you know, basically hired for healthcare. Um, and hired died because they couldn't get lock-in on the demand side because it's a demand-driven marketplace. Um, you know, the, those types of labor marketplaces are more demand-driven. And so they were unable to get lock-in, whereas Incredible Health, by building software for the hospitals, was able to get lock-in. And uh, on, on the demand side, which is what you need uh, in that particular marketplace. And so we just used the other thing on the supply side for, for Octo. Uh, and uh, that's something that we'll, we'll typically do. And then, you know, we introduced them to some folks who have been working at Facebook. And so they've joined. And so now the speed and the cadence are, are up to sort of Silicon Valley standards. Um, and, you know, the team is now moving to Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, they've just raised their A that they haven't announced yet. And so it's, it's um, you know, it's... Uh, putting the pieces together and, and um, you know, figuring out what a particular marketplace needs and then uh, designing for that and, and, um, and surviving until you get the next round. And those are uh, two really, uh, two really good uh, examples. And as I mentioned to you, uh, you know, Mon from Incredible Health was our previous group chat guest and uh, was, uh, such, such a good uh, group chat that we had with her. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was interesting. Well, I worked with her for about six weeks to like come up with the idea and Actually, I think I helped her. I gave her the name Incredible Health. Like we were whiteboarding in my garage, literally uh, in Palo Alto, and I wrote up Incredible Health. She's like, "Well," and so and so she was like, "Yeah, I like that one." And boom, off she went. That's re- that's really cool to hear. So, so as far as like when it comes to you know evaluating marketplaces, you've actually you know shared a, shared a, a post as far as like the NFX kind of marketplace uh, scorecard, and they could probably be an entire kind of group chat, you know, just discussing that. Um, but you know, what are some, uh, I would say like some of the specific things that kind of stand out now, maybe that you look for when you're, when you're evaluating marketplaces? Um, first of all, with the scorecard, realize that when you go through the scorecard, you're going to score yourself like 22 or 23 out of 26. It's just not true. <laughs> um, almost every founder I've seen scores themselves like 22 or 23 out of 26. And this is like 1200 different marketplace founders have all scored themselves almost hundred percent. And you have to be a little more uh, honest with yourself about where you are uh, are at with the scorecard. Um, uh, I will I will score you differently, most likely. Um, uh, so that's that's one thing to know about scorecard. The second thing that that may or may not be in there, I, I can't really remember, is one thing we've realized is that um, heterogeneity and homogeneity, where you are on that spectrum, is very important. If you are too homogeneous, like an Uber where every rider pretty much wants the same thing and every driver pretty much does the same thing. It's very difficult to to win uh, unless you just have overwhelming firepower, which is what Uber did. And sort of nature of Travis and, and his approach and that time when there was zero interest rates and the ability to raise money was so unique. 
uh, that they've managed to build business, which is now only 13 years in, um, beginning to have a quarter of profitability. Um, and on the other hand, and so it's very, very difficult. So everybody else has died, right? Think about it. Like you have Didi and you have uh, Uber and everybody else has died. And then on the other hand, if you have too much heterogeneity, you have too many different types of demand from the supply side, too many or too many different types of product, too much. It's usually a demand side problem where the needs of like, like a lot of people have tried to create a marketplace or marketing services, labor marketplaces, right? So people doing, you know, brochures, people doing websites, people doing design, people doing copy. A lot of people have tried to build that marketplace. And in the end, it fails because of the heterogeneity of the demand side. It's just too much heterogeneity. And so it doesn't coalesce into a real marketplace. And so there's some sort of Goldilocks zone in the middle between those two things that we should all be looking for, uh, where there's enough heterogeneity so that you need a marketplace, but there's enough homogeneity so it's not an infinitely sized concept set and therefore it never coalesces. So anyway. Uh, that's that's one thing that we've learned um, to understand more recently when looking at companies. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. So I'm I'm sure that's going to lead to some uh, some questions uh, from some founders here. You know, so I guess you know, kind of uh, somewhat related to that, you know, when you're evaluating marketplaces, you know, wh what do you kind of think are like some of the key things that like uh, I would say differentiate like you know from like the good to the really great marketplaces. And is that something that you know um, you can kind of spot from the you know very early stages? Yeah, I mean the. What you're looking for is high AOV uh, and high frequency, right? So you have to plot that chart and say, where am I? And if you are inside the boundary layer, then you don't really have a business. If you're inside a boundary layer, I don't know where that boundary layer is on your chart, but you draw sort of a red line and, and a curve there and say, look, if I have enough frequency, even if it's a low AOV, I can build a business. And if I have a high enough AOV average order value, uh, or average sales price, ASP. Um, but I, I don't need that much frequency in order to build a big business. So a good example of that would be like University of Phoenix, where they're charging people for two years times $8,000. So it's $16,000 ASP. You don't need that many people before you end up with uh, a pretty big pl uh, marketplace. Or you know, the example we give is um, if you look at uh, Zynga, right? So there was a gaming company and they they're not a marketplace, but they they, they demonstrated this by showing that they could have Farmville where they're making four cents a day per user. But they had 100 million people and that was a business. And they had Mafia Wars. Uh, that, and then we had Dragons of Atlantis as a gaming company that uh, was doing like $3.40 a day per user. So much more than four cents a day. But we didn't have that many users. We only had like 200,000 users. But we both of us had businesses. And then the best businesses was Mafia Wars because they had... Um, they had like a dollar eighty per day, and they had ninety million users or eighty million. And so that was the that Mafia Wars was the core of Zynga's business because they had both high AOV uh, and and high frequency, and so um, or or large large number of users. So those are the those are the core things you look for, and then and then again you really have to look at metrics-driven CEOs and metric-driven teams because these things are so hard to to manage and to fly. These planes are hard to fly. Like You have to be good at looking at your white-hot centers and your sub-segments on both the supply and the demand side. You have to notice the difference between certain types of buyers and the data and then start to skew experiences for them or funnels for them or marketing for them, that sort of thing. 
So there's just a lot of detail orientation around that. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad you uh, brought up the uh, you know the mention as far as you know the white the white hot center because that uh you know that that was referenced uh, in in the in the questions. Um. So could you maybe kind of like walk us through that as far as like uh you know that that kind of concept and what you're referring to? The basic idea of the white hot center is that you can have transactions, but if you really look closely at your data, what you'll notice is that there's a particular group of people who are accounting for most of the activity, most of the retention, the highest AOVs, some sort of beneficial metrics associated with those particular nodes in your network. And you need to identify them and then target them. So for instance, we had a company that was doing something like FAIR, F-A-I-R-E, where they were looking at sort of B2B sales of, of uh, craft equipment, uh, craft goods. And it wasn't going very well. They'd been at it for two years. They came to me. We put in a few hundred thousand dollars and started working with them on the whiteboards and figuring stuff out and looking at data. And we didn't necessarily see a path with that team to creating another type of affair. We said, but who are the people? We, we finally got them to look at the data and find their white hot center. When they did, they found out that these were interior designers who were using it to buy certain things. So we said, why don't you just reconfigure the business to just focus for on interior designers. And they eventually created a company called Ivy Mark uh, and then focused on them and they got acquired by by House um, for lots of reasons. They they could have been a four or five hundred million dollar exit um, had they played it differently. But uh, that was the white hot center within their overall transaction volume. And once they focused on it and re recommitted to that group exclusively, then things really started to pick up, uh, and and that's what I kind of need. Yeah, that's that's a good example, and and I feel like somewhat related to that is a, a topic we were always talking about here as founders in the community is uh you know expansion right and uh, you know if and when to expand, um and you know how important it is you know when it comes to like a, a sequencing um you know standpoint. So you know I guess like if we, if we kind of go back to maybe an example of like an early stage marketplace like another one, um you know. How do you kind of help them th think through, you know, if and when the right time to expand is? Yeah, so you've got geographic expansion and you've got category expansion. And um, I, uh, it, it, the, the, there's no hard and fast rules. I mean, with Poshmark, we had this issue where um, we were focused mostly on women's clothing. Um, and then it became women's accessories, and then it became furniture. Then it, be, you know, lamps and couches and decorations in the interior. Like that started to get a little. And then there was a question of should we should we let that flourish or not? Was that going to be a real driver, or was that going to be a deadener to the commerce and the community? And then the question is, do we expand into children, uh, and then do we expand into men? Uh, and uh, there was a lot of debate about this, and. In the end, we we held off as long as we could uh, to just focus on women's clothing and accessories because we wanted that to burn white hot and we wanted to make sure that Depop and everybody else who was entering the market would have a hard time uh, sort of undermining our core. And uh, we kind of delayed and delayed and then eventually we had to open it up. Uh, but it was probably about four years after we thought about doing it uh, simply because we needed to get the core business, you know, tuned higher and higher and scale larger and larger. And 
you know, it was more important to add in, let's say, stylists and the ability for people to have a stylist profile in addition to their buyer profile or their seller profile. That was more important than us expanding into men. Um, and so I, I don't know that I have a particular rule of thumb, but you, you just have to look at the data about your growth rates, about your attention rates, where the competition is, how much money the competition is raised, how much you're spending uh, to decide whether you own your, your White Hot Center or not yet. Uh, and if you don't, then you got to stay focused until you own it. Uh, yeah. yeah. And sometimes it can get screwed up by VCs, right? Because the VCs and investors will throw money at some of your competitors and then you're all going to have ruinous competition uh, until somebody dies. Like there's a, a, a marketplace called Convoy in the, um, in the shipping and the trucking area in the United States that raised $800 million and they just shut down two weeks ago. I mean, zero, zero back. Everybody gets fired. Like it was a mess uh, because there was just ruinous competition. It was overspending um, and um, they didn't, they didn't navigate the, the debt properly. They didn't navigate the downturn in the freight market properly. They didn't navigate the interest rates properly. So when all that happened, the company just imploded and nobody even bought them. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, gl glad you brought up that last point. So, so, you know, you've mentioned uh, quite, quite a few times here, as far as, you know, the, the, um, the, you know, the focus on the founder, right. And kind of being uh, me metrics driven and really, really understanding that. So are, are there any uh, other kind of like characteristics or maybe traits of uh, that, that you've kind of seen with some of the best founders that you've worked with? Yeah. So number one, they need to be metrics focused from the top. And so that, that, that ensures that everybody in the organization will be metrics focused. Some people like, I'll tell you why I invested in, in DoorDash was because I had looked at the other four sort of delivery companies at the time, and they were all really interested in the experience of the food, right? They were really into the experience, the passion for food. And the DoorDash guys can give a crap about food. They just cared about numbers. They were literally just metrics driven. They were a logistics company. And I was like, well, the logistics company is going to beat the, the foodies every time. And so, you know, a lot of people get into different businesses for different reasons, but really you have to care about the metrics. So that's sort of the first thing. The second thing is that as you go through these seasons, there are going to be people who are going to be helpful to you uh, during a particular season who will be a hindrance to you in a different season. And so the turnover in some of these marketplaces companies is quite high. And so you have to be willing and good at recruiting as well as letting people go. And you have to be willing to do that. Um, and so that's another thing that the more ruthless, if you will, founders uh, have proven to be better um, uh, in that regard. And it doesn't mean that the people who are good for one season are good people or are talented. It just means that they're not a fit for the next season because what the business needs is very different. Um, and then the other thing that we've noticed is that the, the CEOs need to be good, particularly on the B2B side, they need to be very good at PR because you've got to massage the existing people in the market, particularly if there's brokers or other folks who are going to be displaced by what you're doing. You know, they're, they're, again, there are these seasons where you have to kind of sneak up on the market before they see you coming because otherwise they will just not use your stuff knowing that it's about to impact their own margins. Um, so you have, to, you have to be very good at PR in that way, thoughtful. No, you got a, you got a lot of uh, a head nods here. So there's, we have quite a few uh, B2B marketplace founders in the community. So def definitely, uh, you know, relatable on that. So, so, you know, I guess that's somewhat related to that as far as, you know, I, I feel like we're seeing the uh, kind of the rise of uh, B2B marketplaces, right? Like when it comes to kind of trends and opportunities. 
Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I actually was um, going back and uh, listening to one of your chats, you know, previously, where you, where you uh, mentioned where you thought that you might invest like 50, uh, 50 percent kind of in consumer and then 50 percent B2B uh, with NFX. But it's, you know, looked a little bit more kind of like 80, 20 B2B. So do you do you, uh, on that note, you know, do you feel like it's uh, as far as, you know, maybe consumers kind of more competitive or like there's just like kind of more white space in B2B or how do you kind of uh, think about that? Yeah, I think both is true. I think there's more white space in B2B. I mean, the, a lot of the business folks have been slow to adopt software, whereas the consumers adopted it very quickly, both with their laptops and with their iPhones. And uh, And I think that, you know, look, Anything that's exciting and colorful, a lot of people gravitate to, right? So uh, when we talk about our big wins, we still talk about, you know, DoorDash and Lyft and Poshmark and whatnot, because these are things that people know. And so so there's just more competition from founders and VCs who want to invest in colorful things that people know. Whereas, you know, the first, you know, B2B marketplace case study Harvard Business School ever did, uh, they just did it two years ago. You know, so it's kind of just getting going. It's Move.co is, is the name of the case, and it's one of our companies. And it was the protagonist is the CEO Stephen Zhu and and um, and me, and whether we should invest in them or not. And you know, so the B two B stuff is just being researched because it's kind of boring, and uh, you know, it's not as colorful, not as quick to grow. Um, you know, you, you have to really understand and care about a lot of esoterica, uh, and um, most people aren't willing to do that, but they're more interested in shoes. They're more interested in food, right? They're in travel, you know? It's like all the fun stuff, yoga, you know? Like that's what most people like. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, I think I think if you're looking for really good hardcore businesses, you're going to be in the B2B phase this decade. Yeah, certainly. I feel like, uh, you, you know, on, on the other end of that too, as far as you, when it comes to investors too, as far as, you know, AI right now, so. Uh... yeah. Yeah, and and obviously we're we're adding a lot of AI to our marketplaces. So. Yeah, Pete had a, a great post on on that, you know, recently. Of course, as far as you know, AI first marketplace that was referenced in the, in the community. So I guess to kind of cover that in a little bit of detail here for you know founders on the uh, chat, could you maybe uh, share some examples of how you're you know seeing kind of marketplaces uh, you know leverage uh, AI right now? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the basic idea is like, how can you reduce friction for both the supply and the demand? How can you um, use the sort of auto tug features of, of AI to go out and do work for people so they don't have to do it so that the transactions can just show up for them or they can onboard their supply effortlessly um, or use AI to help the demand side sift through and make short lists of what they might consider buying. Um, I think there's, I don't know, we've got probably 17 different ways of applying AI at this point to to different marketplaces. Um but but those are sort of the, the top of the top of the list. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely I'll reference the uh, post again here for for everyone. So so we're going to get into uh, questions here in a little bit. Otherwise, you can I could uh, just go on talking about uh, you know topics here. I'm going to get some some uh, some notes from founders here. But you know, right before we do though, so you of course uh, see so so many marketplaces. You know, and I have a, a lot of awesome uh, kind of insights into them. So are there maybe an, any uh, you know specific kind of pitfalls um, that you see kind of early stage market you know place uh, for marketplace founders? Um, pitfalls. <clears throat> I mean, the pitfalls for marketplace founders are the same as everyone else, and then some, uh, because they're difficult to fly, right? So, um, you know, the first thing is you got to make sure you got the right team. And that the biggest problem that founders have is that they don't have the right team, or that they aren't being the right team member, or that they don't have the right skills. 
Uh, that's the first thing. I think the second thing is again picking the right market. I think that you know if you we we have this rubric. If you if you go to sort of NFX um, sort of patterns of startup ideas, it sort of lays this out that you know after looking at tens of thousands of companies over thirty years, I can tell you whether I can I can put your business into one of three buckets. It's going to waste your life's energies. I don't know, and fertile soil. And the fertile soil is about 10%. The I don't know is about 30%. And the will waste your, I can definitely tell you this is going to waste your life's energies on 60%. And so the goal is to try to move yourself from one to the next to the next until you're in the fertile soil. So the, th the second thing is just picking picking the, the, the right hill to go after is sort of the, the second thing. Uh, and then, then the third thing is making sure you're properly capitalized because these things always take longer than you think. I think I started working on Poshmark and... I think he was writing the business plan on my floor at my house in 2011, 12 years ago. You know, these things take a long time. And in a lot of marketplaces, you don't see, start to see a lot of success until year six or seven. I think OpenTable was selling SaaS software for seven years before they opened the marketplace. So you have to be patient with these things, and it takes a lot longer than you think. And so you have to make sure that it's properly capitalized. No, those are, those are really great. So definitely, it takes a lot longer. So I can uh, admit that myself as a, as a founder. So. Cool. So we're going to get into uh, questions here. Um, let's see, because we had quite a few. So uh, if you had a question, you can uh, you just use the uh, raise hand functionality. Um, hey, hey uh, Max, did you uh, want to jump on? Sure. Look at that. Hey there. Thanks for, uh, for, for doing this. This is awesome. Learn a lot. Um, so Max, I'm from Epicurate. And I was really uh, wondering about, you know, as marketplaces vertically integrate, do you think that companies like Airbnb are going to start buying you know the the property management systems that that they you know their hosts rely on, and we'll we'll start to really see um, more acquisitions like that. Yeah, it's interesting. I um, I think my my gut take right now is that you're going to see fewer and fewer acquisitions. That as AI is making software easier to develop, and that as companies are learning that copying their competitors is okay to do which has not been part of the Silicon Valley culture for years, but is becoming increasingly normalized as Facebook and Google basically didn't invent anything. They just copied everybody. Um, I think you're going to see fewer and fewer acquisitions. I think that you know there, there have been so few tech acquisitions that have actually worked out for the acquirer. Um, some of them are really big, like PayPal and Instagram, but most of them don't work out. So in general, I think you're going to see diminishment of M&A um, uh, as software gets easier to develop with AI. And, um, but do I think that you're going to have more and more vertical integration? Yes. I think you're going to have Airbnb expand out into campgrounds and they'll try to get into RVs and where Outdoorsy is getting into campgrounds and then they will get into houses that everyone's going to expand horizontally. And then they are also going to expand vertically either by building or buying. And, uh, I just think that the, number of times that they decide that buying is the best option is going to diminish versus what it was 10 years ago. Do you think that they'll look into more of the management system for the host? I think they might. I think the general the general decision they're going to make is going to be, uh, do we need to have them, you know, is that already sufficiently fractured? Uh, and is there too much heterogeneity there? So we don't want to own one particular type of software. We actually want to create an API so that all of those can connect in and we can serve different verticals uh, 
more easily that way? Or do they find enough homogeneity? It's got to come back to the heterogeneity, homogeneity line. If 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 the needs of, of what you're talking about are pretty homogeneous, then they might buy one and then try to crush everybody else. But if they find that those needs are heterogeneous, then they're going to want to create an API and then have that be a third-party system and then suck as much value out of each of them as they possibly can because they own the distribution. Good question. Thanks. Let's see. Uh, hey, uh, Bo, I think you are, were first to raise your hand. I know you added that question to the doc too. So Yeah, happy to ask it. Um, so James, my question centers around, you know, reading through the blog posts, it's clear that you believe LLMs will have a huge impact on marketplaces. Yeah. One thing that's not clear to me is whether that innovation will be primarily horizontally. Example, given someone building an LLM service for connecting supply and demand across all marketplaces, similar to what Twilio did for SMS, or if the innovation will be so training data dependent that it'll only take place vertically or within a specific company. Example, given Upwork building the leading services chat box is their advantage in training data. I'm kind of interested to hear your thoughts on which direction do you think the marketplace market will evolve and why? Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of my uh, core theses that people are overestimating the value of proprietary data. So as, as my angle into answering your question, it's going to come from that perspective. Got that if you, if, you go to, if you go to Google and type in data network effects, the first article is, is that about my skepticism about the existence of data network effects. Now, my marketing team made me change the title so that it wouldn't be so negative. But because people love to believe in, in network effects uh, and, and proprietary data. And, and I'll tell you why. It's because Google and Microsoft keep telling Wall Street, we're going to win because we have the data and we have proprietary data. And the reason those companies do that is to keep Wall Street investing in them, number one. Number two, to keep their their employees from leaving. Like, well, how would you leave and start a startup? You're going to have no data. And you know that because we have the data, we're going to win. So this, I think, is a myth that they they create because I can I can synthesize your data. I can steal your data. I can cobble together other data sources that aren't yours. And I can get very good approximations. And as these models get better and better, my solution will become you know, 98.8% accurate and yours will be 99.2%. And the customers can't tell the difference. And so I don't, I don't find, I think Upwork's you know, lead is you know, maybe four to six months you know, in terms of this. And if, if I really wanted to create something that did what the Upwork bot does, I could do it. Got it. So I, I, I suspect it's going to be more horizontal in nature. Um, uh, I think the reality is going to be more catch as catch can over the next two to three years as this whole thing starts to settle out and everyone understands the game. And, uh, you know, uh, but I would I would not over-index on your proprietary data thesis. I, I think there are, I, I think there's going to be very, very few cases where that ends up being persistent. Got it. Thank you. Thanks for that. Hey, hey uh, Chris, do you uh, want to jump on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks heaps, James. Uh, awesome having you here. And uh, I really enjoyed that you were talking about metrics because that's what my question is related to. So uh, what kind of fidelity do you expect and think is ideal for your metric tracking and dashboards at different stages? Because when we've spoken to investors and we have investors, um, you know, if we were to only listen to investors, we would almost spend all of our time building metric dashboards uh, at, at potentially. And so how do you balance that, given that you've been on both sides of the table with sales taking action, the gritty stuff that maybe is a little harder to point to versus the measurement piece? And for context, B2B marketplace, 
uh, high ticket value, high frequency, if in case that helps. Yeah, I, I, I think the question is really sort of, it's important to use metrics to make your decisions, but how much is too much? Um, and so uh, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, we had a uh, Bill Gurley on our board at, uh, at, at, at Second Life and we would have these these board meetings that would be four hours long and Bill would spend two hours like looking at, you know, line 48, page 27. And I'm just like, really? Because uh, he was a Wall Street analyst before and that's how he saw the world. And it was a disaster. It was ruinous. Uh, so I get what you're talking about. Um, you know, look, I think that often investors, here, here, here's one thing where you could be self-critical. Often investors are asking you either because they're stupid and they don't know what to say and they want to sound smart and sort of, um, you know, that, that's that's their problem. And you should recognize that and ignore them if they're just being, you know, I'm smarter. I'm going to ask you these questions. Or they're asking you because they don't think that you're doing a sufficient job of controlling it and, and doing the queries yourself. Like if you are very efficient at making your own queries and very efficient looking at your data, then they won't be asking so many questions because they'll feel you have it in, in hand. Um, and so sometimes you get into the cycle where the founders don't realize that they're not very good at it. And so then you end up all the board members keep asking for more and more reports, just trying to spur the founder to get interested in their metrics, to get clever and smart about what they're looking at and ignoring that data, but really focusing on that data, laying out the data in this way or that way. Um, you know, I was just working with one of our analysts uh, yesterday and, you know, he's learning how to do that. And he sent me a spreadsheet and it was, you know, not very good. And so I had to go spend a couple hours, you know, moving the data around, collecting more data, augmenting it, and then showing him and putting the colors on it, ranking things in various ways, adding new columns so that we could actually look and make decisions and get conviction about something. And he was like, wow, you know, I, I thank you for showing me this, blah, blah, blah. We'll see if he learns or not. But the point is, uh, you know, this is a ex-McKinsey guy, this is a Stanford guy, this is a 28-year-old, and he still doesn't know how to do it well. Maybe you don't know it well enough so that your investors feel confident. That would be something I would look at because it's it could be them because they're stupid and they're trying to be imperious, uh, try to LARP. You guys know LARPing, live action role playing. They're LARPing as a board member. Um, uh, but it might be that you're LARPing as a CEO and you actually need to get down and, and, and more nitty gritty in it. Um, and I think Bill Gurley kept poking on these numbers in part because he didn't feel that Philip was, you know, doing a sufficient job of combing through the numbers, which actually wasn't true in Philip's case. And the way we would do it in my company is that Stan and I would just sit around on Saturday mornings, you know, you know, eating uh, chocolate croissant and, and just typing in SQL queries because it was fun. Huh, I wonder about this. I wonder about that. And then we would just we would sort of navigate through our data, and then come up with insights uh, to help us make decisions. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Um, hey, hey, uh, James. I actually had a question. Uh, some someone messaged me, and it was uh, added to the doc in advance as well. Um, but you know, what, as far as when it comes to kind of, uh, I would say like metrics or benchmarks for for raising a seed round right now in the uh, kind of uh, you know the current fundraising environment, mm -hmm. um, you know, for from NFX, you know, what is the, what are some uh, I guess kind of like ballparks we could use for that? I mean, we had somebody come through here uh, the other day with a marketplace. Uh, they haven't even launched it, and we would consider investing in it simply because of the idea and the team and 
Um, and we would, we would consider putting in, you know, two to $3 million to help them get going. Um, and so there are those conditions because we had a prepared mind about a particular area and they came with that exact thesis. And so we're like, well, we've been thinking about this. This made sense to us. Um, so there are those cases for a seed. Um, you know, typically, you know, uh, you know, we'd like to see a product built and we'd like to see some transactions taking place, um, you know, so that we can gauge sort of what's the actual potential take rate, what's the actual AOV. Are we going to be able to get broad enough so that we can find our white hot center in the next phase and focus in? Um, uh, you know, will our two to three million dollars be sufficient to help them get there? Uh, do they need to raise five million? We'll put in like three point four or something and, and and bring around together. Uh, so there's lots of factors in that. Um, but generally, again, like we 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 want to see the right AOV, we want to see the right frequency slash retention uh, in order to believe that there's a a big market there. Um, the other thing is sometimes we don't need to have a big market initially. We just need to know that they're going to have a white hot center, and then we'll figure it out later. Uh, that's another thing, but we just need to know there's a really, really white hot center um, that we believe in. Now, in terms of Series A, I mean, we've seen companies with, you know, sort of, um, you know, six hundred million dollar GMV, eighteen percent take rate, have a hard time in the Series A markets, right? You know, it's it's tough out there. Um, the Series A dollars, Series B dollars are sitting on the sidelines. Everyone's trying to like invest in seeds because they can deploy two, three million bucks and and not really worry about it because they're a big fund. So it's um it's it's tough for the A's and the B's right now. That's gonna be a really helpful. So certainly uh, relatable as far as for, for many out there as far as being tough. So we're gonna try to squeeze in. Uh, we'll get one one last question in here. Um, hey uh, hey Kyle, do you uh, want to come on? Yeah hey, what's up James? Thank you for your time and your insights. It's nice to hear an East Coast perspective and uh, hearing a lot of West Coast. Um, my question goes back to an earlier comment you made around Lyft, and it sounded like their network effect is kind of staggering a bit. I was hoping you could kind of share some more insights on that and maybe how we can, as marketplace operators, make our network for, network effects a little bit more defensible. Yeah, so I think what happened was, if you go back to NFX and type in like NFX Uber, you'll get an article that we wrote four or five years ago about Uber and how their network effects just aren't that defensible. And yet, nobody's been able to challenge them uh, because of their size and scale. And what has happened in the last couple of years with Lyft is that as their network effect in their various regions has diminished, as their market share has gone from 60% to 50 to 40 to 30 to 20% market share versus Uber in various cities around the US, those individual network effects, which are regional, have collapsed. So you look at Boston. Boston used to be the number two tech center. It's now number four or five because the city's tech ecosystem just collapsed after enough people were stolen out of it into San Francisco and New York. And the same thing's happening to Lyft, and, uh, which is unfortunate um, because I prefer the brand and I prefer the management to to the Uber and I was an investor, but I mean, obviously I got out years ago, but um, uh, what ends up happening is the fewer, you know, you know, the fewer drivers you have, the um, 
the longer the wait times and the fewer drivers you have, the more you have to pay them to keep them on the network. And so, and the, the less money you have in the bank, the more margin you have to take in order to keep going. And so your prices end up being higher. So if you look at Lyft and Uber in San Francisco, you know, over the last year, I've had to move off of Lyft onto, onto Uber just because it's always cheaper. Uh, and they're always faster just because of the network effect. And so the way that Lyft would have managed through that, I don't think it's savable anymore. I think they've got a billion of debt and like they're burning half a billion a year. And I think they got two billion in the bank or something. So that gives them about two years of cash unless they fire half the people, which they probably could. But anyway, um, the, you know, the, the only way to do it is to keep incentivizing the supply side. It turns out that this is a supply side market that as long as you have supply, you will have a lot of demand. Uh, but the problem is finding and retaining your supply side. And so they just needed to have focused on that. And um, that's how Uber ended up becoming more indefensible. Now, the other thing Uber did was they got into the DoorDash business, uh, which ended up being the better business, uh, which was hard to know, you know, 13 years ago, you know, 14 years ago. But it turns out the DoorDash has the higher frequency and the higher AOV. And so that has really propped up Uber in order to get their metrics to the point where they can sustain on the ride share side uh, long enough so that Lyft just dies. Um, so in terms of making your stuff more defensible, you've got to figure out who the key nodes are and do whatever it takes to keep them there. Like, you know, you think about, you know, if you go to uh, the article on NFX called Network Bonding Theory, that's like the mother load of sort of interesting thinking about this. It's not, a, it's not an article that a lot of people reference because it sounds so boring. But there's actually a big example about Messi in there and his network, you know, sort of adding that node into a network and its effect on that network. And if you start to think that way, you'll you'll realize that there might be in your in your marketplace, there might be eight or 10 people who you're willing to like give them 2% of the company each in order to keep them on your marketplace. Because if you do that and the other nodes on the supply side coalesce and then all the demand comes to you and you end up winning and you only gave up 14, 15% of your company do that with them rather than doing with the VCs and, you know. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Defensibility was a great last question to wrap, wrap things up. So so we're almost out of time here, but uh, James, we really appreciate, you know, taking the time to join us here today. Once again, this is a real treat, you know, to have you join us. So uh, you're a highly requested uh, group chat guest and uh, we're all big fans of, you know, of uh, all your, all your great uh, posts that you've shared and, uh, and of course, uh, NFX. Um, you know, I had one of the last question though for you right before we wrap things up, and that's uh, you know, if you could go right back to before you entered the uh, the world of uh, marketplaces, you know, what would you uh, tell yourself about them specifically? I would have told myself focus on consumer because it's only going to last a certain amount of time, and then and then uh, switch over to B two B. I think we switched over to B two B at the right time, but it wasn't with any foresight. It was literally just by talking to founders, uh, and then seeing what was available and saying, "Huh, that's actually interesting." Um, which I think is why we ended up, you know, sort of being on the forefront of all that. Um, but it wasn't through any sort of uh, press seats. You have to understand the cycle that you're in. I mean, realize, guys, that the whole venture cycle is sort of coming to an end. Like we've had, you know, hedge funds were good between '90 and 2012, and it's, they've had a really hard time for the last 11 years uh, beating the S&P 500. And mutual funds used to beat the S&P 500, you know, but by the early '90s. After about 20 years, they weren't. They're were about, about one out of five per year. You know, would would, would beat the S and P 500. And I think the same thing's going to happen to venture capital. So it itself is in a cycle. You know, I think when I started in the venture industry, there was 150 people doing my job. I think there's over about 40,000 now. I think on 
Signal.NFX is almost 32,000 just there alone. There's got to be another 8,000 who haven't built their profiles. So call it 40,000 people doing my job. Like that's unbelievable from 150 people to 40,000 people doing this job over the last, you know, 30 years. We're, we're at a different part of the cycle. And so you need to understand where you are in the cycle of your industry or in marketplaces in general or startups in general. Uh, and it's all been going up and to the right uh, up until, you know, two years ago uh, for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. But it's going to be commoditized. Software is going to be commoditized. Um, the methods, like I'm talking to a lot of people here. I don't know. There's four pages of us, right? So a lot of people are learning the secrets. We're, in order for us to get deal flow, we publish all of our secrets. And so the playbooks are becoming more and more known, which means your information advantage is diminishing. So everyone, I mean, you know, it's just at a different part of the cycle. And so I kind of backed into marketplaces because we got acquired by a marketplace in 2004. Uh, it was at the right time, but uh, you need to understand where you are in the cycle, I guess. That's what I tell myself. That's a, that's a really great, great out point. So, well, cool. So yeah, we, once again, I really appreciate it. And then uh, where can we keep up with you or reach out to you? Well, you got to subscribe to the NFX newsletter. Uh, and then, um, you know, I've got a Twitter and I've got a LinkedIn. We should all be following you anyways, but uh, if not, I'll include our links here. So that way we all can. So, okay. Well guys, it's great to meet you all and, and go get them. I'm so glad you guys are doing what you're doing. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks everyone for joining in today and the uh, great questions. So thanks for listening to this episode and making it all the way to the end. As mentioned, our podcast is the audio version of our virtual group chats that we do for the Everything Marketplaces community with Marketplace founders and leaders every week. If you're a Marketplace founder or team, you can check out the community and request to join us at everythingmarketplaces.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please also leave us a review. You can also find the video versions for all of our group chats over on our YouTube by simply searching Everything Marketplaces. See you next time.